Welcome to Oddly Influenced, a podcast about how people have applied ideas from outside software to software. Episode 29, Tron Hjortelan on Open Systems Theory, a form of industrial organization more radical than agile and with perhaps more potential. This episode has a bit of a backstory. I stumbled across a review of Agile by the Australian academic Marilyn Emery, winningly entitled A Patchwork of Contradictions and Confusions Inside the Software Industry. It is specifically about Agile, and as you can guess from the title, Dr. Emery is not super fond of it. Her alternative is Open Systems Theory, or OST, an approach to industrial organization that has a long history. It's a research tradition dating back to not long after World War II. It's one informed by many on-site observations, and it's been refined via lots of research into organizational transformations. But it seems mostly unknown in the software world. Dr. Emery appears to believe that's because we're all a bunch of damn fools who deliberately fail to seek out proven social technologies right in front of our faces. Having read some of the source material, I'm more inclined to blame lousy explanations of what it actually is. Whatever the virtues of OST people, and I believe they have a lot, they are not, as far as I can tell, effective popularizers. Fortunately, there's a software person, familiar with Agile, who took it upon himself to learn OST. That's Tron Hjortelan who truly heroically read the relevant literature in historical order from the 1940s onward, and even journeyed from Norway to Australia to learn from Dr. Emery herself, and from others in that tradition. So it seems sensible to invite Tron onto the podcast and find out what this OST thing really is. I'm glad I did, because while it superficially seems like Agile, OST is actually considerably more radical. That is, OST for software would be like the tradition-breaking parts of Agile, but with even more tradition-breaking practices and attitudes added on. Naturally, that appeals to me. The structure of the podcast is roughly like this. It starts with some preliminary descriptions, which might make you think there's nothing new here. Then there are descriptions of how so-called DP2 organizations differ from Agile. Unfortunately, OST is one of those transformations that requires buy-in from the top, and not just the sort of pretend buy-in you get from the typical roll-scrum-out-across-the-enterprise transformation, but real commitment. That makes it discouraging. Actual employee empowerment seems a distant prospect in this age of tech layoffs, and the obvious glee with which large companies look forward to replacing programmers with large language models trained on open-source repositories. So, toward the end of the episode, I made sure we'd discuss how people might apply some of the ideas down at the leaves of the organization tree. Tron is a consultant and, going forward, hopes to make his living helping organizations succeed at OST transformations. I think he's going to need to be the popularizer that OST hasn't had. In particular, he's going to have to write a book. He's also going to have to write shorter descriptions of technologies like the search workshop, described later. I'm encouraging him to do that and have offered to be an editor. 
I encourage you to also encourage him. A technical note. My skills as an interviewer continue to be subpar, and it shows. I have a lot to learn about asking questions in a way that makes a conversation flow smoothly, especially when I'm surprised by the answers. As a result, I've had to do a fair amount of moving pieces around and inserting awkward voiceovers. Sorry about that. I'm also using a new, more powerful audio editor. I'm liking it. But with great power comes great opportunity to shoot yourself in the foot and a steep learning curve. That's affected this edit and certainly delayed this episode. Again, I apologize. So, hello, Norway. Hello. Home to 0.9% of the downloads of this very podcast. So I hope you will be flogging it among everyone in Norway so that we can get those numbers up. You are the smallest number of downloads of all the Scandinavian countries. Oh, really? Which okay, yeah. total a whopping 5.5%. Of. To, to start out, you've got a talk on YouTube that I watched this morning, which has an interesting twist in that you start out with displaying a little graphic of a team and you put adjectives and descriptive words right next to the people and you talk about what those words mean. We're primed to be thinking that you're describing an agile team, but you're actually describing a team from socio-technical systems design from something like the 1980s. Well, actually before that. Before even. that. Mm -hmm. So you have learned about socio-technical systems and something that is called open systems theory. I think that your thesis is that Agile has failed, which I agree with, and moreover that it was destined to fail because of we didn't know the things that researchers in socio-technical systems and open systems theory knew. Is that fair enough? Yeah, it is. Uh, maybe a little bit more blunt than I would put it, because uh, I, um, I have enjoyed Agile for, for all my professional career, starting in 99. And, but what I do uh, recognize that what we tried to do back then is very similar to what the socio-technical system designers uh, discovered in other industries. And that, and that goes back to the lie, I think the first discovery was in 1949, if I remember correctly, which was in, uh, of all places, the British coal mines. So, uh, so what, what I noticed there is that uh, due to actually the complexity of the introduction of new, uh, new technology, they noticed that the teams were doing worse and worse and worse, but some teams were actually coping better with the new technology than, uh, than others. And what I, what I saw was that uh, uh, the teams that did better had actually did some self-organization. So uh, actually in those coal mines, they, they, they sort of define uh, not the researchers themselves, but actually the, the people working there called it social technical because they, they recognized that I needed to, to optimize both for the social part of the work and also the technical. But the core thing that sort of what drew me to into it, it's not an obvious thing, uh, but what I noticed what this sort of the self-organization and the democratization of work which is something that I really recognize, at least for myself, back when I started with Agile. What's the, what's the feel that we are, we are sort of taking charge of our own jobs? Right? We, don't, we don't allow for people outside who potentially know less than us 
to decide and describe how we should do our okay. work. So uh, we sort of self-organized in a certain way. At least uh, my first time when I did uh, Agile, it was actually the team themselves that decided, let's do it with, let's mm -hmm. try Scrum. It looks cool. And let's try some XP and do some pair programming. So it, uh, so it was all about us figuring out better ways to, to sort of to manage. So when I learned about social technology, I also recognized that aspects of it. And that's kind of what drew me into and later then, of course, social technical evolved since the since since forty nine into what you describe as open open social technical system, uh, or open system theory. It's actually more the formal OST is the formal uh, na uh, name of it. We're gonna have to start yes, defining that's... some terms. I'm gonna start at the beginning. I have heard the term system thinking or system yep. science all my life, and I have never had any sort of idea what it is and how it differs from non-system. A simple way of explaining is that you see it's a way of framing things. So it's basically a way of modeling the, the, what we see around us. So one way of looking at system is, is like looking at the whole and, and looking at the parts and see how the parts relate to each other to form a whole. So, for example, if you look at an organization, you can look at it as the parts and the whole. So the organization is a whole, and all the parts relate to each other, right? In a, say, in a hierarchy or formal hierarchy or informal hierarchy or whatever, right? All the people working together. And was was uh, a wonderful thing that Russell Aikov coined was that it's not the sum of the parts that's the system; it's the product of their interaction that's the output of the system. So, so it's not the parts itself; it's how they interact. That's, and that also, then you also get into what is called emergence, right? There's, there's something happening here that is not obvious from the parts. Say, for example, if you look at your organization, you say, if you look at all what all the contribution mm -hmm. for every person is, you will see that the, the output of, of, of the organization can't be explained by this, the individual inputs, oh, sorry, outputs. You actually have to look at how they interact, and that's the sort of the, the outcome. Now we transition to the difference between systems and open systems. In open system activity, you don't see the system as closed. You see it as open. It's exposed to, to the environment. So instead of focusing on the parts and the whole, you focus on the system and its environment. And what open system theory, uh, system theory says is that you can't, you can't close that. There is a, uh, your organization is always exposed to the environment. And I think most people can recognize there is an immediate environment, which is your, your competitors, right? Your, your, so your industry, the market uh, that you're in. So what open system theory actually says that, that you have to go further than that. You have to look at the social field as well. As you, uh, you can imagine, uh, I'm, I'm sort of waving in my hands in the air. So uh, imagine you have a wide social system. It, that is you and me working in the air, uh, being out there in the world, right? So when, per, when, when workers come into through the office door, they actually take that social system with them because they are... Um, the idea is that the system is actually forming the environment, and the environment is actually affecting the system. So it's a two-way interaction there, right? So, uh, so an environment is defined by the system it's an environment for. My understanding, having read some of this stuff, is that there are three systems that they talk about uh, with the catching – the first two have the catchy names of DP1 and DP2. Then there is laissez-faire which is the description that Marilyn Emery uh, gave to Agile, laissez-faire. If you look at the system itself, that can, have, that can take on uh, what Fred Emery defined as uh, two design principles. That's a DP. 
design principle. It's as easy as that. There's nothing uh, magical about it. It's just a name. So what he, uh, what he sort of has sort of refined and based on the experiments and what they observed in the field. So all, this, uh, all these models are based on what they have seen. It's not, it's not something that they have created in the, in the academic world. Uh, if you remember back to that 59 experiment, that social technical, that was done in the mines. That was the people in the mines that were actually coming up with this stuff. And for them, we discovered that, would, and, but, but this was actually later. This was a national experiment that was going on in Norway in the, in the 60s called the Norwegian Industrial Program. Uh, he discovered the one, the two uh, design principles, the DP1 and the DP2. DP1, that is what we recognize as the bureaucracy and mm-hmm. the hierarchy. So DP1 is sort of the common bureaucracy or hierarchy. Uh, and it's a hierarchy of personal dominance. If you imagine uh, a factory, like, for example, uh, an assembly line, you would have different tasks that people do. WXAZ, for example, right? And then you would have people A, B, C, D do those tasks. And you want to bake them so simple as possible that you can replace those parts re- easily. And those parts would be people then, right? So you'd, you would de-skill people to the lowest level so you can easily, mm-hmm. cheaply replace them. But when you do that, people don't see the whole thing. They only see their little part of what they are uh, working on. So then you need supervision. You need somebody that controls the whole. Which means that the people at the bottom, they have no control, they have no coordination, and they have, have no uh, definition of the goal. The goals or everything there is happening one step, at least one step above the people doing the work. This is, this is sort of the, the extreme version of an assembly line, for example. Putting washes on bolts, one job, one man, one job, right, kind of thing. And that is also, of course, a, a system where there's competition. When you're working at the bottom, and the, the only way to sort of get, get ahead in the world is going up, becoming a new supervisor. So everybody there is fighting for the same role. And you don't want to look bad, right? Because if you look bad, either you're going to get that pay cut, or maybe you get fired in certain countries, or, or you're definitely not going to get that race or that going higher up. So he coined that as redundancy of parts. So in, for a system to be uh, resilient, you need to have some redundancy. Redundancy in that type of uh, model is the parts. You can replace the parts easily. Right? People are doing dumb jobs, you can easily replace them cheaply. So what they discovered then in the mines and everywhere else in the world later on was that there was something called DP2. So what happens there is people self-organize. So instead of there being one, uh, one, job, one person, one job, they actually grouped together in, in, in what they called multi-skilled teams. And then the redundancy wouldn't be of the parts, but it would be on the function. So one person would, do, would be able to do one, more than one job. So the redundancy was in the number of things that one person can do, which means you don't have to replace the person, you just have to replace the work he does, or he or she does. Right. By doing that, they also get a picture of the whole. They understand the whole task, which also means that the supervision is no longer needed which also means that the control and the coordination and the goal setting then is moved down to the team. And this is the essential part here. In the DP1, all of those three, coordination, goal setting, control, is one, at least one level above. In DP2, it's in the team. Awkward transition here because I sidetracked us before Tron could talk about laissez-faire. You have, as I said, you had DP1 and DP2, but you also have the, uh, when there is a situation where there's neither of them. <laughs> Right. There is not a clear DP1, there is not a clear DP2. That's what they called laissez-faire. And when I say they, it's actually not uh, the open system theories. This go back to the 40s, some authority experiments by Kurt Levine, uh, where, where they sort of studies groups and, and how they reacted to leadership. So 
like uh, like the, uh, the, the sort of the deeper one was that there was a dominant leader. Uh, deeper two was when there was a democracy, when the leader was coming down and discussed with the team and they agreed on how to do things. That was deeper two. And then there was a failed experiment where there was a leader coming down thinking democracy means everybody can do whatever they want and then left. And the team just went ballistic. They, they, they had no coordination. There was no control. And they were, they were doing, the, the work was terrible and they didn't get along well. There was infights and it was actually worse, worse than DP1. Mm-hmm. So that's less a fail. That was coined back then in the forties or something. I believe. So, so, so they sort of reused that term to sort of to explain the situation where there is no clear definition. There is no formal deeper one or formal deeper two. We'll finish up the background with a review of OST's list of six intrinsic motivators, which may be different from other similar lists you've seen. Some of the differences between OST and Agile come down to the motivators they address. Because of how I asked questions, discussion of the motivators got smeared all over the interview. I'll consolidate them here. The first three have to do with the individual. They are elbow room. That's having control over your work, a place where you don't feel you're being told what to do. Continual learning, which is what it sounds like, though there will be some discussion later. And variety, not doing the same thing over and over again to the point you get bored. Now, Tron will take it from here with the social motivators. You want mutual support. You want support from, from the team. And you want to feel there is a meaningfulness to what you're doing, that, that, that you're actually creating some social value, and that you have a desirable future. That's the sixth. That you actually have a career path. There is, this, this is taking you somewhere. That shows up again and again, is that a DP1 team has bad scores on these. The one higher up in the hierarchy had better scores because they are more in control. Right? Sure. They, yeah. But the, the people on the bottom has terrible scores on these. When they do redesign, work in deeper two, do a reiteration of the scores, they are way better. They are way better. And it's, it, and it's not just a little bit. Now let's move into how DP2 is different than a typical Agile team. It starts out sounding familiar. The, cl- the closest you came you said, was on a particular project, but it wasn't quite there. What was missing, and is that typically missing? I think we were quite self-governing. We had sort of, we we decided how to do our work, so there was nobody else doing the design for us. We were also part of of, of deciding what's coming up. We did the full testing loop, but we did meet the customer once. Mm. So we had the control but we didn't really have the coordination, the real coordination that goes all the way to the market and back. We didn't have that. So we didn't see the sort of the end goal of the whole thing. So we didn't own the goals either because somebody else told us, your goal is to produce this component that's going to do this for some customers. So we were lacking both coordination and control. No, so control we had, but coordination and goal setting. We didn't have that. To expand on that, in her paper on Agile, Marilyn Emery said that Agile lacked coordination. Because I'm focused on what happens inside the team, which ought to be full of coordination, that puzzled me. Tron explains. So, as I said, when when the group self-organized, they take charge of the, the they are sort of they are controlling the work themselves. So, what Agile did is is that it's, it's similar to what the uh, what the coal miners did. They sort of took charge themselves. So they took charge of the, they took control of of, of, sort of their own work. But while, do, while working in shifts or something like they do in the coal mines, they also needed to coordinate between each other, between the shifts. 
And okay. Agile didn't do that. They didn't pull down the coordination. They pulled the power down, yes, but they didn't co- uh, coherently or just redesign the organization so it actually supported coordination. That is sort of what she's claiming is missing. Would it be fair to say that what's missing is not coordination within the team, no, but exactly. coordination between teams? Correct. Okay. Correct. What we can do is try to re-implement the coordination efforts. Because what we have end up doing with the coordination between teams, for example, we do flight levels, so we do safe, or we do right. We try all this stuff that we strap on, and what we do then, which is really really curious, is that we then introduce control again from the top on the teams. So we take away autonomy. So you you take away control from the teams because they need to be coordinated, right? So they they need to give up some of some of their own control and autonomy in order to be coordinated. So they have to give it up. They're not just redesigning it themselves. So, for example, what we're doing then is we are placing part of the job onto the shoulders of the product owners. Yes. We and our team are saying, you, product owner, go coordinate with other product owners, however it is you do that, and you tell us what we need to know. That's control in that it drives the work, but it's it's not control of how the work is done. It's control no. of what control of the goal. Exactly. So that's probably where Marilyn is sort of maybe missing a little bit because she doesn't know IT that much. Well, she has some experience, but not detailed at the level that that sort of I could bring to the table. So she probably didn't know that we were good at coordinating within the team, and we also had sort of an agreement with somebody above. And it's not a personal dominance; it's more of a work design or dominance of what we're going to work on so mm-hmm. it's not as strict as you probably would find it like in a in a in a bureaucracy in a class of bureaucracy with a in a manufacturing setting or whatever we probably give away that coordination easily i don't know but uh, by doing that we actually create what you mentioned earlier less affair that's what i think is problem with uh, with agile is that we have these, these uh, happy little bubbles of what you try to be deeper to, because I think we all agree deeper to is something we want. Mm-hmm. But we put them in an organization where the rest is deeper one. So the issue then is we have to get the product owners to form their own little DP2 groups. Yeah, that's one option. But I would suspect if people were able to design it themselves, they would remove that role completely at, from outside the team. They would put that in the team. But again, people have to design it themselves. You hear uh, Marty Kagan talk about, for example, something called uh, mm-hmm. Empower Product Teams or somebody else. And this looks to be very similar to what Deeper 2 tries or uh, is describing. Something to notice here. If the product owner or the product management role is to be pulled down into a DP2 team, and DP2 teams favor maximum feasible redundancy of skills, we're going to see people with product owner skills learn other skills, while programmers and testers learn product planning skills. It's a good thing there's a strong emphasis on learning. I contrasted that with typical programming teams. It seems that in most teams, learning is not an explicit part of what the team is about. It is something you do when you have a chance. And teams don't really have the autonomy to say, oh, we're not learning enough, so we're going to slow down. Mm. Spot on. That is actually a central part of the redesign. 
but you also have to measure the skill matrix. So they have to figure out what sort of skills do we need to reach those goals? Uh, what sort of skills do we need to manage the team, for example? Because we, there's nobody else helping us now. We have to do it ourselves. Here's a snippet of conversation that illustrates more about real autonomy and also about learning. I've been on a team where there was a lot of like personal conflicts. There were two people getting in uh, in fights to say, no, no, this is never going to work. We have to show him out or whatever it was, right? But that's a problem. That's something that management see, and the management that controls it. They said, okay, we have to pull you out because you're not you're not functioning in the team. But if the team were chosen to do this themselves, they would probably have managed that quite nicely. Surely it must be the case that people don't always get along happily. There has to be some mechanism for yeah. conflict resolution. And of course, yeah, that's so, another skill yeah, that you I, want to learn. Exactly. I think the teams need to learn that. So probably we need some, some extra skills on how to do uh, like uh, conflict management. Curiously enough, though, what the experiments have shown, again, back to the 40s, though, so, but uh, probably have been some since also, but that's the one I remember, is that I said even the hell races were reduced in a productive working group or a deeper two type of organization because they want to fit in. But, so we have certain needs, and one of them is, of course, we want to be self-governing to a certain extent, but we also want to fit in. So we need to fit in because we're social animals. That's basically what we always said. We are social animals, so we need to... So uh, when people self-organize, they, they don't, this weird, but they stop thinking about themselves primarily. They probably do so in the beginning. But when they, when they try to coordinate and you see it, we have a common goal and we want to reach it, and you know that you can only reach it if you work together, things change. You're not submitting yourself to the majority, but, but, but you see yourself as part of a bigger thing. Kind of helps that I come from socialist Norway. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely has that Scandinavian feel to <laughs> yeah, it. That's what the open system theory says is if you want to optimize social technical system, DP2 is the only way to go. But that doesn't mean that DP1 can't have a place. And I don't know if you're familiar with, with uh, David Graeber and David Wengrow. They have uh, yes. uh, done of everything. Yeah. They have a story there from the American Plains where the Native Americans, they, they actually switched between what I interpret as DP1 and DP2. When they were hunting bison, they would be DP1. Because then you would have, you have to be in control, it has to be ordered. Mm -hmm. And there's no, people can't just come up with crazy ideas, they have to follow orders. And if they didn't, they were thrown in jail, basically. So when they were finished hunting, they went back to, to their camps. And if there was a chief, the chief was only there to sort of uh, manage things, right? They didn't have a controlling manner. And then, of course, when I did the hunting again, they were back to DP1. But mm -hmm. I actually switched who was the boss, who was the chief when I did that. If you were thrown in, uh, in prison one year, you could, you, you could actually be the boss next year. There's an interesting dynamic there. And I, and I think that's probably what's going to happen at the DP2 team as well. There's going to be leadership there, but it's going to be more fluid and it's going to be contextual. So uh, say if you have some specific task, well, you, Peter, you know this best. You can guide us through this stuff. Yeah, sure, cool. Next, next time we do something else, that, that, that could be Anne who, who sort of does it, right? So I think it's more of a fluid thing and people sort of share that more, subject themselves to an expertise. It's not a role. This emphasis on learning and multi-skilling has implications for career paths. Instead of having a career path that goes up in the hierarchy, because you don't have a hierarchy to go up in anymore, right? So you have to figure out a new way, a new career path for people. And the way that most organizations have done this is they're saying you have a skill-based career path. So the more skills you have, the more pay you will have. A self-managing team needs to be complex enough so you have a career path within it okay. to say at least six six years or something. It's just a rule of thumb, of course. But 
there has to be a desirable future for the people in the team. They shouldn't be doing the same job every day because that, that, is, that is one of the intrinsic motivators that people have is that they, don't, they want variety. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things that I picked up from one or more of the papers yeah. is the relationship to pay. If I'm interpreting it right, people are paid not by how much they can produce, but what skills they have. Yes. I guess because the assumption is if you have a DP2 team, they will be deciding to practice the skills in an optimal way. When people redesign, and they sort of redesign also their pay system, right? They, they probably need help for that, but they have some idea how to do this stuff. And they realize that they, they can't compete uh, between themselves because that is not good for the whole. So you can see that DP2 teams have control of, or at least strong influence on, a number of things like learning and pay that I think are seen as far outside the scope of even the most self-organizing of agile teams. There's a reason for that. Fred Emery, along with his partner Marilyn, was the key co-designer of OST. In some of their early experiences, experts had designed work structures that hadn't worked well. Even if the expert had the perfect design of how organization should look, it usually didn't work. Mm-hmm. It so fell flat. They, they couldn't understand why, why is this? Why doesn't this work? If it does work, it doesn't diffuse. Other people doesn't pick up on it, right? And what, what they figured out was that that's because somebody else is designing people designing an organization for people that they are not part of, that people have to do it themselves. People who do the work know the work best, so they know how to reorganize. If product ownership is pulled down into the team, and there's team contact with customers, and there's no boss, what's left? What happens to the people who are currently in the management hierarchy? If you imagine a hierarchy again, you have have all these this bubbles of teams at the bottom, but you also have team above. As you, uh, these teams would actually do productive work on that level. They wouldn't control the teams underneath them. Say, for example, at the middle level, you would have somebody do, doing strategy, for example, or or coordination with the external vendors or whatever. Right, something that goes on a different time scale. So the teams would work on a small time scale. The one above would, would work on a longer uh, time scale, and the one at the top, the C levels, would work on strategy and work out towards the environment. So uh, what they see is that when an organization reorganized to, to this uh, principle, a large organization end up having three levels. But the levels are not dominance. They will work on different time spans. Okay, that's yeah. interesting. Mm, it's very interesting, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so the competition is really something like safe. It is. It's that whole organization turnover. I think it's Peter Orton who said it. It's, it, it, it's not only a radical redesign, it's a DNA switch. You can't do it a little bit here and there. You have to do it the whole thing. I admit that I know nothing about SAFE except that I've seen the really complicated diagram and <laughs> yeah, not, <me> too. <laughs> not read it. My impression is that is not a DNA switch no. for the people at the management and above level, it's DP1 variant 12. That's correct. That's just it. It's that when we do this, this, this large-scale thing, we try, like less, for example, on SAFE, it is actually reintroducing or re- reinforcing the DP1, mm-hmm. which is fine. I mean, that could work. But then we have to realize then we're going to have problems at the bottom because they still think they're DP2. 
So there are confusion here. Okay. People at the bo- at, at the bottom thinks they are they think they are controlled because they are agile, right? They call themselves autonomous, right? While the people higher up, so to say, the management level or the product owners or whatever, they think they are in control. They are calling the shots. Mm-hmm. They're saying, yeah, yeah, let's let them play around with this tech stuff. But I'm I'm pulling the shots here, right? There's always competition. There is never calm, and and that lack of calm and order and control makes people feel makes them feel bad. One of the observations of early Agile was that a lot of the Agile people seem to have been compulsive programmers, 10x programmers, cowboy coders, firefighters who got old and want calm. They Mm -hmm. don't want adrenaline rush and we, our industry right now is very much favoring people who want adrenaline rushes. One of the things that alarmed me in what I read was a comment, and whenever I hear comments like this, I get this feeling of dread, mm-hmm. which is that this isn't going to work unless there's buy-in in the executive suite. Which to me means it's hopeless. <laughs> you know what? Uh, that is my biggest worry as well. So I completely agree with you there. However, Tron points out that companies have transformed. In Australia, the home of OST, examples include telcos, weapons manufacturers, healthcare, shoe manufacturers, and more. Why did they give it a try? It's an old story. What is a common here, though, is that when they come and ask them for help, they are in pretty much in dire straits. They need mm-hmm. to do something. If they don't do something, they're going to end up out of uh, the business. But yes, you need buy-in from the top. Tron points out that in a lot of organizations, self-organizing teams seem to disappear when the going gets tough. As you probably know, if you have a team that had a full trust and, and maybe there was a manager, a benevolent manager so that gives them some power to the team and everything is good, and then suddenly the shit hits the fan and the manager comes, you have to do that. You can't. Mm-hmm. Blah, 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 blah. And then they start to bossing around because they have to, because they are measured by it. or It's, it, it's their job, right? One, one of the things that I noticed was there's a sense in which when you're doing this with the whole organization – it's actually encoded in rules and laws and compensation structure and contractual that would presumably prevent or at least dampen that impulse yeah. that when things are going bad, I, the boss, have to take control. Yeah, exactly. I'm so glad you brought that up because uh, this, this is something that Marilyn highlights again and again. It's, oh, can we just get along, right? <laughs> we have a moral agreement, that's fine, right? No, no it's not. When, when these organizations do this redesign, what they have to do is they have to create a formal deeper two. That's really important. It can't be just an informal deeper two. Uh, what we have in Agile is very much an informal one. We agree that we're going to work like this, but it's not on paper and the existing contract is still there. So it's, it can be brought back up, right? So you have to formalize this. You have to bring in unions, potentially, for example, and you have to redesign how the employment contracts are. And they also suggest that, that you write it explicitly. You don't say you have a DP2 mm-hmm. organization. Here, we work as DP2, right? No, you have to say, here, we put the control, the coordination, and the goal setting to the people that is doing the work. 
that should be in the contract because you can't tweak that into something else. You can't manipulate that to be a DP1 again. And then you have to sign it. Everybody has to sign it and uh, management and everyone. And then if somebody comes in and says, no, we're going to redo this thing, they have to redo their whole contract. So there has to be a consensus to go back. Although companies large and small have applied OST, I'm going to guess that it won't sweep the world. It's pretty foreign to corporate culture, especially in the U.S. and U.K., which happen to make up 55% of my total listenership. So what can people without DP2-style autonomy do down in the little bubbles at the bottom of the org chart? Well, perhaps they can try out some of the workshops that have been developed for OST. There's more information in the show notes. A good first step would be to look at the intrinsic motivators. I would suggest all teams to actually run a survey on the six criteria on your team. Remember, don't do this individually. Don't say, send out a survey and then people fill it out and then send it in. No. Do it together in the room. All the oh, team, okay. the whole room, you do it together. You go through every person so the person can explain, why do I score three here? Why do I score one? Why do I score five? Because it's important that the team understands uh, why the scores are the way they are. And then figure out, how can we change this course? How can we make it better for people in the team? The next workshop could be a search conference. This is a social technology that's been around for a long time. Marilyn Emery has two academic books on it, one from 1996 and one from 1999, and it's been refined and tweaked ever since by Emery and others. However, a lot of practical knowledge today exists only in the heads of practitioners. The search conference is a general-purpose way of producing a strategic plan for change. So, what is a search conference like? It's not too dissimilar to workshop that we in IT do otherwise. I don't know if you're familiar with event storming or user story mapping sessions or stuff like that. It's, it's, uh, it's not too dissimilar. It is a basically getting the right people in the room and then letting them decide uh, what's going on. Actually, a really interesting distinction there between this search conference and other I've seen is that the facilitator, which we call a facilitator at least, is something that I call a manager of the process in a search conference. Mm -hmm. And it's really important that the manager stay out of the topic. He or she should not get involved whatsoever. The only thing that a manager should do is like keep the, the sections in the right order and make sure that the people don't run out of time. Probably the biggest difference is that there is a very strict order, structure, the way you do it. You would actually start three in the afternoon on the first day and then continue until nine. Next day, you start up early and continue until nine. And then the last day is like two uh, until three o'clock or something. So the first thing you do is actually figure out what your goal should be. So a search conference is something you would only do if, if you don't have an end goal. You want to search for it. You want to search for where you want to be at some point. A common thing is used for strategic planning, that you want to figure out where do we as a company want to be in X number of uh, years. So normally you would actually start out by looking at the wider uh, environment, and this is where the open system theory comes in, right? You will figure out what changes is happening outside the system. There should be a time range of six, seven years, it should be far enough ahead that you don't have to be an expert to guess what's going, uh, going to happen and what, and what changes are happening in the world. So anyone can uh, join in. It's because you want to build a community early on. It should be something that everybody can rally around and can see uh, they can join in. 
So when you start with the, the sort of the outside of the system and the sort of wider social field, then you together decide what is the most desirable future and what's the most probable future of the world outside of a system. Okay. Then the second step is looking at your system. And then it, you start with looking at the historical events of that system, what shaped it, what things happened in the system that, that's, that made it what it is today. And then you do a deeper analysis of the present system. You probably look at what things do we want to keep, what things do we want to change, and what things do we, do we want to add to it. And then when we have that, then you again look at the most desirable future of the system. The same way as we did for the environment, but then again, this only in the scope of the system. And then the third segment is when you integrate these two, right? You have started with the environment, and then you've continued with the analysis of the system, and then you need to integrate the system with the environment, the change in the, the environment. And in the next segment, you actually start with looking at the constraints. What, what sort of constraints do you have, and the, how should you deal with the constraints? And based on that, you then decide what is the most desirable and, and achievable future of the system. The last step is then actually creating the action plans in order to reach that desirable, achievable uh, system. And so the search leads into the participative design workshop. The only reason you want to do a, a PDW is when you want to change from a DP1 to a DP2. That's the only purpose that that workshop have. And you would do that for every type of group in your organization. So uh, it's, a, it's also a fairly structured process, similar to the search conference. Do you remember these, those six criteria? Mm -hmm. So you do a measurement of these during that uh, first uh, section? You had earlier suggested that people do that six criteria thing as something they could do first, but normally that's done as part yes. of the PDW? You could do that. The six criteria is interesting to do anyway. If, if, if you just want to have a little temperature gauge of your organization and see how well are you doing, how, or rather how well are the people doing. So the secretary, you can use it for any reason, but in, in the PDWs, it's required as the first step. That's the analysis step that you do. The second one is the, what do they call redesign. This is where you do the actual redesign of an organization. So what the participant then do is draw the workflow of how the work works today. So typically a value stream type of exercise. And then they would redesign that structure. They redesign their uh, organizational structure, not, the, not necessarily the workflow. Okay. Because the workflow, that could probably work well today, but you could adjust it at the same time. But the focus should be on how does people work together. So, so it's a redesign of the organizational structure. So that would be the second step. And the third step is called the practicalities. When you change from DP1 to DP2, there is nobody helping them in controlling and setting their goals, for example, right? And the coordination is something that the team must take over themselves. They have to figure out to do that, and they have to go through the skills matrix. You go through the skill matrix and figure out what sort of skills do we miss? What do we need to either hire in or who should educate themselves in the skill? So the team decides on this. And also when you remove the DP1, there's no career path anymore, not a classical one anyway. So they, will never, they need to figure out how to do that and how they should do payments and all that stuff. You turn into a more of a startup kind of approach here. So you have to figure out all the technicalities of how you should actually manage this. Okay. And sometimes you would do a reiteration of the six criteria again and see how, how would they change. So we can measure if there is any progress, for example, if there are any better scores uh, and 
that's a good way to measure that you're actually moving in the right direction, that this is something that would work for people. Well, good luck with yeah, your thanks. fixing the world of software, having been there once yeah. myself. It's a lot of fun when you think it's going to work and not so fun after it doesn't. Yeah, that's, so that's the frustrating thing, is that because it can be so much fun, but it's going to also be so extremely frustrating. It's like it's, uh, it's, it's a roller coaster of feelings every time when you go to work, almost. Right? Well, thank you, thank and you. Uh, thanks to all the people who have listened to this. 